Gather round because we're here at Dreamland with none other than Cole Schaefer himself. We're talking about the stuff that stirs your soul and keeps you up late at night. At Dreamland, we sit down with Grammy-winning producers, James Beard award-winning chefs and New York Times best-selling authors as they divulge the processes they've used to turn their dreams into the kind of creative work that's shaping culture as we know it. Buckle up because this is no ordinary show. There will be fire, spilt milk, and more than a few surprises as we discover what it means to be creative at Dreamland. So are you a fan of uh, the film The Fighter? The Fighter? Oh, yes. Yeah, you're a fan? Yeah. Is uh, your hometown, you know, it's portrayed in a, a pretty gritty light in that film. Is it is it pretty accurate for where you grew up? Yes. So I left there when I was nine. Okay. But my uncle um, was a, a detective and a policeman in Lowell his whole life. And so a lot of what I understand about Lowell comes through the, his lens. Uh, he was a real tough guy. Peter Geekus, great guy. <laughs> and uh, Peter, Peter liked when things could be solved in an, back in the alley. You know, at Cole, we get things done then. You know, now it's all red tape. And he arrested uh, Dickie, the brother in the, in the film, several times. And, really? Oh, yeah. And because he was a major crackhead and, you know, ev so everything seems pretty accurate the way they portrayed it. Um, and uh, he would go, oh, yeah, they, you know, they would let him go certain times. It was just, you know, the thing I, I did, a not to immediately switch gears, I did a ride along once with the police. I, I wanted, I entertained because of my Uncle Pete, the idea of being a cop, because I always thought it was not glamorous, but interesting. I think I would have been a good cop if being a good cop was a thing you could be. Right. That's fair. Right? Um, I understand and respect that. But uh, anyway, I did a ride along. And uh, because at the time I was coming out of comedy, so I was looking for stability more than anything else. I thought, okay, at least I know there's good benefits. <laughs> and so uh, here's what I learned after one night. Um, it's all just cat and mouse. It's all just it's cat and mouse. Cat and mouse. You know, I'm riding along with this guy and we would go into like a, a, a corner where all they do is deal drugs and he would just like slow roll through there. Everybody kind of, you know, behave for a second. And then he maybe pull over and somebody would come up and they'd have friendly chit chat. It was like, remember the cartoon with um, uh, the shag, the dog, uh, the sheepdog and the sheep and, and they, they would clock in. So yes, they show I, up at work and they clock in together and then they try to kill each other and, and chase each other. <laughs> and then they clock out. See you tomorrow, yeah. Ralph. Yeah. That's exactly what I was like. Oh, this is just, obviously there's more to it and it's more complex, but when it comes down to, from my impression, what they do on a shift, everybody knows what everybody's up to. So anyway, my uncle, they would arrest the guy and they knew his brother was a famous fighter and they were rooting for that mm. and uh, they let him go and whatever. So, yeah, but that is, uh, that is Lowell. Yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, do you ever regret not becoming a cop? No, but I do believe I, I could have, 
you know, the closest I looked into it was I actually bought two books. One's really cool that you would dig called What Cops Know. What Cops Know. And it's basically just stories from cops about human behavior, like what they've learned as cops. Damn. All right. I'm buying that. That's a great book. As soon as we get done. <laughs> um, the other one was more like a, um, uh, like a handbook, how to be a policeman, like 101. And it just, I, 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 the vibe I got from it was like, wow, man, this is uh, too close to the military. Rules and regulations and, and hierarchy, obviously, that, like, that's how it works. But that part of it just was so anti my vibe. And I was yeah. like, I, I don't think I'm going to enjoy all that part of it. But, you know, when I watch Bosch, I'm like, I, I, I could have been, I think if I could have ever made it to detective or something, because I feel like um, I do really like, I have an instinct to help people. But another thing the guy told me that night, and this is really what sealed it before I even ended the ride along. He said, uh, I didn't even have a, my first kid yet, but I told him we were working on a family. And he goes, I'll just tell you this, man. He goes, if you planning to have a family, he goes, that really makes the job tougher. He goes, you see things done to people that will really change how you view humanity. Holy like, shit. And I was like, all right, that's probably not. Yeah. Why, why, to, to have that in your head all the time. And that's why I can't help, I think it's just not as simple as we want to make it. Cops bad. I mean, it's just like there's a, a, lot of, a lot of cops in a lot of places and a lot of scenarios. And I'd like to think a lot of them signed up for the right reason, but we also know a lot of them didn't. Right? right. So it's a complex issue, but when you just look at it as a job, both my neighbors are cops, husband and wife team. And I don't, we're not super friendly, but whenever I see them walking out of the house in their blues and getting into their cruiser, I'm like, it's not, gonna, it's not a fun day. No. On, no. Your, on your best day, you're seeing most people at their worst. Yeah. And, uh, other than that, you're doing a bunch of paperwork and, and stuff. It's like, when is it gratifying? Tough gig, man. I could go on about this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a fascinating subject to me, mortality yeah. in, in those things. Yeah. Um, Do you feel like your outlook as a writer creative has changed the older you've gotten compared to when you were in your 20s? Is there more of a sense of urgency or do you find yourself being more patient? Hmm. The actual sitting and writing yeah. part of it? That's a really good question. Um, yes, I have gotten more more patient, and I would say in, in some ways more obsessed with getting it right because of having more experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, meaning, the, the one thing that stayed consistent is the feeling you get when it's good, when, when it's getting good to you. And how, once you're done that, the rest of the day can go fuck itself. Yeah. It just doesn't matter, right? Um, so that was the spark. But now I, I recognize the pattern. Like, oh, this, okay, this is getting somewhere. And then I, I, I get meticulous and more patient with it. And so if I spend two or three hours in one session on an email and don't quite get it done, or, you know, post an article, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Whereas before I might've been like, I'm going to lose it. I can't get back to this. 
It ruins your night. I mean, I, I feel like when, when I was in my early twenties, if, if I didn't get something done, I almost couldn't think about the next thing I had to, had mm. to see it through. Cause you were afraid you, you were harnessing yeah, something. I was that, scared yeah. I was going to lose it, you know? Yeah. Um, well back to, is it Lowell? Lowell. Lowell. Yeah. Uh, back to Lowell. Um, what about the, what about that town has shaped your life and your creative work? It's so funny that you're asking me this. I, I brought you a book I'll give to you tomorrow. Okay. And uh, the reason I'm in love with this book is because um, it's written right, Andre Debuse Third, and it's called Townie. And he grew up like two towns over from Lowell. Around, he's probably a couple years older than me. And he is filling in the blanks for what would a life might have been like had it, we stayed in Lowell. Because like, we moved when I was nine. And forever I've wondered, what would my life be like? How would I be different just as a person, my yeah. environment? Certainly a tougher place, tougher people. You know, Northeasterners are alone just in general, but Lowell itself. But Golden uh, Gloves was a big event in Lowell, boxing. Yeah. These guys would um, fight to the death essentially for a weekend. You know, most fighters will fight every few months. It was more like a wrestling tournament. You fought, if you won, you fought again up to maybe 10 times over two days. <laughs> did, they have I mean, gear, did they have headgear and shit? Or? I, probably, I don't know. Probably not Whew. like way back. Like yeah. just insanity. Yeah. And so anyway, um, it's, I've been thinking more, more about that than ever. And, and of course, I still have family who grew up that way. Um, there's no knowing, but um, I do wish I had more time there. The big difference for me was was how it felt to live there and what I experienced in my environment compared to when we moved to Florida. So when I was in Lowell, my my mom had my sister at 16. My dad was 17. That was their plan to stay out of my for my dad to stay out of Vietnam. Have a kid. Yeah. Did it work? Getting married worked. Getting married worked. I think the kid was on purpose. Oh, I know what it was. Get this. This is wild. They, the plan was, if he knew if he was married, he'd stay out of Vietnam. The only way my mom's mother would allow them to get married is if she was pregnant. Yeah. Damn. Take a second with that. Yeah. He just revealed this to me a few years ago, and I'm like, <laughs> they knew because that's how kind of twisted she was. Um, so it worked. Uh, they had me when my mom was, uh, 1920, 19 or 20. So imagine when I'm, my first real memories of being a kid were my dad and my uncles building our house on the weekends, but by, by hand from scratch, from the, from the studs up. And um, getting to go like throw scrap wood out the windows and fun things yeah. like that. And that was our house on Percy Street in Lowell. And my dad at 2021, uh, he was a mechanic. And so him and his friend Roland had gone in together and bought a garage that was a few blocks away. So my childhood was, I felt like such a part of, we were actually in Drake it, which is right outside of Lowell. 
And uh, like my, we knew all the cops. I used to beg my dad if they, cause they, they, they would tow all the wrecked cars and take them back to the garage, mm. right? And I'd say, if you get it, if you get a record call, you gotta wake me up, I wanna go, I wanna go. Once in a while, he'd take me three in the morning, cold. And uh, when I was at his shop, the cops would come in and everybody was funny and everybody's making jokes and they had, it was a filling station too. So they knew everybody coming through and I was just like, this is what life looks like. This is everybody knows each other. Yeah. And then we up and moved to Florida and it was like being dropped off on another planet. It's hot. I don't know anybody. I'm nine I'm, and nobody seems to want to get to know me. I'm getting bullied. And it was just like, what happened? Yeah. And what, what part of Florida? Clearwater. Clearwater. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's the mean streets of Clearwater. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is funny. But which it, is quite the change up. But it was just, yeah. yeah, it was more like a no man's land. It, it wasn't like, I mean, bullied is bullied at that age. If somebody's beating on you, uh, I guess it doesn't matter where you are. But I would, I think maybe that's part of it is like, I would have been much tougher. Yeah. <laughs> if we stayed in law, I probably wouldn't have put up with a lot of this. Yeah. And then, and then uh, in, in Florida, you go to high school, you drop out in the 11th grade, which surprised me because now, you know, you teach thousands of people. Yeah. Just quite the change up. What, what wasn't clicking for you when you were in high school? Why'd you drop out? Yeah. Everything was great up until the 11th grade. I remember in the 10th grade, I guess I liked writing a little bit back then because we would do like morning pages, right? Yeah. And uh, I remember specifically writing about how, um, grateful I was to be able to get an education, which I remember even thinking at that age, like, where's this coming from? <laughs> but I meant it. And I was like, you know, um, and then a year later, all of a sudden, um, I have no interest and I just want to be an adult. I just want to be out. So I think two things happened. One is in the 10th grade, I got super into school for a minute for like one semester because I had a friend who I had like four classes with and we got super competitive and we were both trying to get better grades than the other one. And so I got all A's and B's except for one class typing. <laughs> <laughs> and the teacher told, they show you your grade right before the report card. And, yeah. it's, and I'm like two points away from a C and I'm like, can how oh, you got to help me out. I'm going to lose to this kid. And she's like, oh, she's real stiff. I go, you don't know. I go, you have to understand something. This is never going to happen again. I'm never <laughs> going to get this close. It was just so, so, so a little about my thinking too at the time, yeah. right? And she's like, nah, rules are rules. I think that was discouraging. It showed me like, oh, it, it, it's not that I can't do this. It's like, maybe I, why don't I want to? Yeah. And then having a job just in being around adults made me feel a lot more, um, um, I don't know, like whole yeah, and mature. And I just thought, what's the point of going, why don't I just do this and make more money? And that 7.35 an hour, man, you know, come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's a fortune when you're going to school for yeah. free. Yeah. And I just, and so, yeah, I dropped out and I decided I wanted to drop out and, no knock on my dad, but I remember 
at least in my mind, through my memory. I remember him wanting to say, no, you're not doing that. And I went to him and I'm like, dad, I think I'm going to drop out of school and just go work full time. He said, well, I did it, so I can't say anything. I was like, no, you can. Yeah. You can say you can do it. You know. You'd say something. You'd say something. Uh, challenge me. And then you go and work at a drugstore. Yeah, man, yeah. you did. Yeah, it was called Farmore, and it was like a grocery store that's a drugstore. And uh, yeah, I'm just uh, stocking shelves. Something about I share this in common. Letterman used to say this all the time. David Letterman worked in a grocery store and loved it, and he said it's a gratifying job because you're making stuff nicer all day. Yes. I agree. I think I, I, I've never worked in a grocery store, but I wouldn't mow lawns when I was in high school. Yeah. And there was something gratifying about that work, how you get to the end of it and it all looked good. Yeah. You stand back and Christine. go, oh, like, I yeah. did something. Yeah. Yeah. Something good. Yeah. Um, that is where the first time I ever made a joke into a microphone was at that job. Tell me about it. There were, we had the closing announcements. So they'd come on and say, okay, shoppers, uh, we are closing in five minutes. So that would happen every night, and they would say, somebody go do the announcement. And I guess it was my turn, and I, I had an idea. Now, keep in mind, uh, the meanest boss I've ever had was at that store. His name was Jack. Really mean guy. Um, and, uh, I was really afraid of him and, but, and he was there, he was on duty and I was like, I'm doing it. And it wasn't <laughs> brilliant. Um, but it was either going to work or it wasn't. Right. And so I grabbed the mic from like, I'm in the back part and I'm like, I don't know if you remember the twilight zone, but I was like, the, the song is like, <laughs> you're shopping on aisle five <laughs> you know and, and i don't remember the bit but it was i went through this i committed to the bit yeah of, it was like a twilight zone themed closing and i came out and i saw a couple people kind of chuckling i was like all right i think the bit kind of worked and i come around the corner and sure enough there is jack hauling ass he looked like a roadie for the allman brothers right <sighs> he had this long stringy yeah. hair <laughs> He's just shitty. In a bad time. Yeah. And, and he's hauling ass right for me. And I'm like, is it? And he's like, Rogers. He goes, if that wasn't so fucking funny, you'd be fired. <laughs> All right. And that's what I said. I was like, and, it, right. and, and then was was that at the point in time where you're like, damn, I might be able to do this comedy thing? Yeah, it, it, a little bit. And yeah. That was a spark because the only other evidence I had or that anything that put it in my head was oh, me and my fr friends and like loved stand up. We would yeah. watch all the Dangerfield specials were out then, the kind of revival in the eighties. First time anybody'd seen Seinfeld and uh, Sam Kennison, yeah. and Bill Hicks, and we would memorize these specials. And so I could do uh, pretty good impressions of all the comics. And so I was like the comedy jukebox at parties. People go, Kevin, do the Seinfeld thing and do the you know. And I loved getting laughs because it was like my only connection, especially with girls. Yeah. I mean, I got no game at all. But if you can make them laugh. But at least for a minute, I'd get their attention. Yeah. And uh, so that was motivation. <laughs> In your 20s, you're 
traveling around the country, opening for Chris Rock, John Stewart. Yeah. I I imagine at some point you're going to write a memoir, or I hope you I hope you will. What what is a story that will end up in that memoir from your days on the road doing comedy? Yeah, there's a lot of sordid ones. I mean, you but the best one has to be the Chris Rock story. Let's hear it. Okay. We interrupt this broadcast to bring to you a message from one of our lovely patrons here at Greenland. One of my favorite writers of all time is Hunter S. Thompson. He was played by Johnny Depp in the book-turned-film Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, the film got a lot of people interested in psychedelics. It also freaked a lot of people out, too. Take the opening line. Suddenly, there was a terrible roar all around us, and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats. Psychedelics, when abused, can be this a scary trip. They can be a sky full of bats. But when taken in sub-hallucinogenic doses, they can enhance your creativity. Schedule 35 is one of the most trusted psilocybin brands among creatives in North America. Now they got micro doses, which is what I like to take when I'm feeling like I'm in a creative rut. If you're into seeing bats, you can use a super dose. Also have the lover's dose if you're feeling frisky. If you say fuck the doses and you just want chocolate, they also got psilocybin chocolate. Today, Schedule 35 is offering Dreamland listeners, that's you, 15% off your first order with discount code DREAMLAND at checkout. If you want to claim that, just head over to Schedule35.co and use discount code DREAMLAND at checkout. Let's get back to the show. Now, the interesting thing is Chris Rock was not a respected comic before I worked with him in Chicago. Uh, I'd seen him once in a club in New York, and it confirmed the rumor that he's just not that good. And the knock on Chris was that he was Eddie's guy. Eddie liked him. Nobody understood why, because he wasn't that funny, but Eddie would give him, get him on shows and do all these things. Eddie, Eddie Murphy. Murphy, sorry. Okay. Yeah. And um, um, he'd gotten he'd done. The one thing he did that impressed people was New Jack City, because it was a dramatic role. And it was like, oh, okay, there's something, some substance there, but it wasn't a humor role. And so I think he had uh, then been on SNL and completely failed, right? And to, he talks about that all the time. Anyway, so I'm in Chicago and uh, they bring him in and I'm like, hey, do you want to open for Chris Rock? And I kind of didn't. Yeah. I was like, ugh, fine. Because you just, you just were like, I don't, I just, is that the show's going to suck. I'm like, yeah. but whatever. I'll, I lived in town. I'm like, I'm, I literally thought I would introduce him and walk out. Yeah. And so introduce him the first night. And I'm like, I wait around for a minute. And the Chris Rock from Bring the Pain walks on stage. And I'm like, what? What is, where did this come from? He's prowling like a tiger and he's killing. And he's got this thought-provoking, challenging material. And I mean, if you look back to his early stand-up, the cadence and the things weren't there. He invented that. That was his, I don't know what happened. And I was blown away. I mean, and I sat every night and watched every show. And was just like, he was super quiet. Like, I didn't get to know him throughout the week. But um, he was friendly. Every time I had come off stage, he had a writer with him, uh, another comic. And they'd be in the manager's office and there's a little speaker where you can hear the showroom and they'd be, every night they ate Carson's ribs, which was right around the corner to 
some of the best. I've rooms. never had that. So good. It's good. Is so it still good. there? Yeah, it's still there. And uh, he'd be like, you know, how's the crowd? Good. And it's interesting because comics always say that to each other. He's sitting there listening, and the crowds were good all week, and he could hear that, you know, there were laughs. But comics say to each other, how, how are they? Even though they're, they were just there, what they're asking is, what don't I know? Is there a drunk person in the front row who's mumbling after every punchline and only you can hear mm. them? Like, what, what are the room conditions? Got it. So it's not like a surfer asking, how are the waves? Exactly. Okay. It's kind of... It's like a military guy going, yeah. whatever they would ask. What am I about to walk out into? Exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. Where, that. where are the snipers? Yeah. Um, so he can walk out knowing like I have a motherfucker in the first row that's going to badger me all night. Exactly. And he's not going in blind. Okay. That's exactly. interesting. Yeah. So every night, that was basically our report. How are they? Good. Great. You can, you can enjoy them. So first show, uh, Friday, I come off. Same thing. How are they? Great. Cool, man. Have a good set. He goes, hey, here's coming to second show. I go, no. He goes, Jordan. Michael Jordan is coming to the second show. At that time, Michael Jordan is the most famous person on this planet. In the world. In the yeah, world. Yeah, what, what era was this again? When, he, was, he, had, uh, he was playing baseball. Okay, he was playing Between baseball. retirements. Or between, during retirement. Between, between dynasties. Did you even want to know that Jordan was going to be there? I got excited. Yeah, okay, I you got excited. Uh, it wasn't it, like, a, oh, no, I'm freaking the fuck out now. No, and maybe because Jordan, he was an idol to me as much as he was anybody else, but I w wasn't a huge basketball fan necessarily. Yeah. So someone who grew up idolizing him may have had more trouble with it. But you were just like, damn, this but is But I was cool. just like, wow. Um, so he was on the cover of Time Magazine. There was a shot of him. Um, from behind with, with him holding the basketball behind him. So maybe, I think there was a rumors he was going to start baseball. I don't know if he had actually started yet. But, uh, and it was like the shot of, wow, George retiring. It's like, I remember the image. So I went and I bought that Time magazine. And I'm like, I don't know, see what happens. I don't want to be the douche, you know? And uh, <laughs> so we go and... Um, and it's just electric, dude. I remember, of course, you know, this. they wait till everybody's in. They bring him in. And I remember just watching him walk to the bar. And it was literally like his feet didn't hit the floor. I mean, he glided across the yeah. floor. And I don't think it was just in my head, you know. And if Richard Dent was there from the Bears um, and their wives, and they go in and they go up upstairs. And I... Go on stage and it, everybody knows he's there. It's just electric. And sometimes things happen. But the best shows are the ones that you don't do what you planned. And something happened on my way to the stage that sparked a thought. And uh, I made a comment to somebody and it felt like a perfect segue into my closing bit. So I opened with my closing bit and it killed and then I had to follow it for 20 minutes. So yeah, imagine now this is where I have the room. 
Yeah. So you, you start with your best material. Yeah. Out of the gate. And, uh, and then I was just able to carry that momentum. And again, it was an easy, it was a layup because I guess pun happened, but, uh, um, every, nobody was going to be in a bad mood. They're looking over at Michael Jordan. But the funny thing was after every joke, I did not expect this, but all I could think was, I wonder if Michael Jordan left. Uh, the waitress who had his section must have known I needed to know if he was laughing. And she's the one person who worked there that I did not get along with. We just were kind of like natural enemies. And um, she came down the stairs and I was at the bottom of the stairs and she looked at me and she goes, oh, you made Michael Jordan laugh. It's like she just knew I had to know. It's like, I'm like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of a godsend. It yeah. was, it yeah. was. And so... Um, claim, to f- claim to fame yeah. right there and made Michael Jordan laugh. And then he uh, came through the kitchen, shook my hand, which was wild. Yeah. Saw me, his face lit up. That's badass, man. Yeah. What do you think flipped, what switch flipped for Chris Rock to go from literally being a shitty comic to being what you experienced that night at that club? Yeah. I want to say I've heard him talk about this a little bit, but if I had to guess, it was being fed up with being, with having that reputation and maybe maturing enough to go, they may be right. Yeah. And knowing you had more and maybe, he probably felt like he was following the rules and doing what he was supposed to do up up until that point. And um, maybe he just took time and said, I'm going to dedicate myself and find out if I can be a great standup. Yeah. And then that's a great thing about standup is you can only practice it in a club. You can't hide. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, anybody goes to clubs in New York, they always see somebody famous because those guys have to work out. Right. And women. And uh, so I'm guessing he just, you know, did six months in clubs in raw New York club where he didn't have a reputation. Right. He had a bit of a name, but he was kind of known as a failure. Yeah. He talks about SNL was the biggest mistake for both parties ever. It was just not where he belonged. And so probably had a big chip on his shoulder and something pissed him off. And damn, man. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it's crazy. The kind of comeback he's had, you know, since because, now, I mean, I would say most people would say he's one of the goats. Oh, yeah, 100%. And look what he's done beyond just stand-up, too, yeah. right? He wrote that play. Mm-hmm. That I haven't seen, but I know it was well-regarded. It just goes to show, man, like it's so, it's such a fickle business. Who gets a chance and who doesn't? Yeah. How many times have we seen people have a okay career and they hang around long enough and then do something unexpected mm-hmm. that's brilliant? Yeah. And wins praise and, and wins awards. And you're like, that was in there the whole time. But if they, maybe if they never got that first shot, they would have gave up. Yeah. One thing, one moment that, I mean, I imagine I wasn't the only one that was impressed by it, but when he was on stage, makes a joke about Jada, and then Will Smith comes on stage and slaps the shit out of him. And then just him having kind of the poise to literally take it on the chin, yeah. not do anything, and then just go on like nothing had even yeah. happened. It almost looked fake. Yeah. I mean, I just, but when I watched that, I was like, man, this dude's a, 
This dude's a professional. That was my takeaway from it, yeah. too. Yeah. Aside of everything else that was so bizarre about it, it did look staged because he handled his response. it so well. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, and he was um, talked about it. Everybody's seen the show. Everybody Hates Chris is a great example of yeah. him producing something great. He was a skinny, awkward kid, didn't really consider himself tough. And to take that hit the way, I think it shows something about the performer's mentality when you're yeah. on stage, you're, you're in another presence um, where it, you are a bit like a caged tiger. And so I think it was partly that. Yeah. And, and maybe shock. I don't know how he didn't go down. I mean, that was a full on. It was a very, very hard was, hit. Nothing was held yeah. back there. Yeah, if he would have balled up his fist, he would have, I think, probably broke his jaw. Yeah. It's insane. That's got to be his, the best part of that for him. Yeah. That he took it so well. He didn't go yeah. down. He, his like, hips didn't even move. He was just, yeah, he just... I was talking about that with my uh, boxing coach the next day. And my coach was like, yeah, that he has a strong chin because mo that, that knock a lot of people out. Yeah. Um, is I've always been curious about this because comedians joke about it all the time, or at least they allude to it, but is cocaine use as prevalent in comedy as it's maybe led on to be? It certainly was. Yeah. In the eighties. Why do you think that is? Um, I think because um, there's a lot of time to kill, mm -hmm. and that means you have you're afforded the ability to sleep all day, and it's such a high to be on stage that nothing is going to duplicate that off stage, and that's only forty five minutes to an hour of your day, and so partly because of the culture of being it's a night and you're in clubs and it's like rock and roll culture that way. It's mm -hmm. just around. But I think it stems from chasing that adrenaline and um, yeah, I mean, I've truly never felt a high like that when you have the crowd, 200 or so people in the palm of your hand and can certainly see why people do it. It's just sad, dude. I was reading, um, was I watching about, you know, I watch a lot of rock documentaries and they're talking about how the 70s were the peak of creativity and everything. And then the 80s, um, Coke came in, or even in the late 70s, mm -hmm. right? 75, 76, and just ruined the vibe. Yeah. Every, it just ruined yeah. everything. Nobody's happy on Coke, man. Yeah. Maybe in the moment, but what it then you just chase it. I mean, that was the saddest part, these guys who I knew. That was their whole life, chasing chasing a baggie. I, I remember this guy. I won't say. I don't think he's still alive, but I won't say his name. Um, and he was the first guy I'd ever met who was like really, and everybody knew his coke was his thing. And uh, I pull into a Seven Eleven. This is like two hours after the show. We just happened to both be there, and I see him coming out with a bag of donuts. I right, guys are going, man. And he starts, he's like, ah, this, fucking, this town sucks. Everybody's a fucking liar. And it was just all because somebody didn't come through with Coke, you know? And I go, oh, man, that's a bummer. I go, what are you going to do? And he goes, sugar. Sugar. <laughs> he's okay. going to eat donuts. Yeah. Next best thing. Next best thing. To being high on Coke. <laughs> <laughs> that's your life. Very bad.
talk about your decision to move from comedy to copywriting. Well, it's just a miracle is that I found copywriting. Yeah. Um, I had this question in my head when I left comedy because I knew I had tried several doors into the business, right? What's that? What do you mean by Meaning that? Meaning by stand-up was the, the first natural door. You think, okay, um, I'm pretty good at this thing, and now I need that break. And I would see friends of mine would get a manager and start down another path that was a little more constructed. And I'm like, okay, I guess I need a person who will take me. Mm-hmm. But nobody was. like. It, it felt like the people with the magic wands didn't. I'd be like standing there with four other people and they'd be like, you, 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 <laughs> never me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just like, like, I guess I got to take it as a sign that the people yeah. who get it don't get me. Yeah. And it, somewhere along the way, I remember my first collaborative project with other comics um, was so gratifying to me. We wrote a script together. We had this, I had this idea for a, uh, all radio, all comedy radio network, which of course now there are several. Yeah. This was before satellite radio or anything. And Bernie Mac's manager, it was her son. And I think she needed him to be doing something. So she said, go find some artists to manage. I opened for Bernie Mac and he saw me and he's like, we need to meet. And he basically offered to manage me. And I was like, that's it. It's happening. It's real. Yeah. He's like, what do you want to do if you could do anything? I got this idea. He's like, let's do it. Okay. He's like, write a script and we'll go record um, like a pilot. So people will get a feel for what it is. So I sat around with three of my comic friends and we wrote a lot of um, little skits and things um, that, that would serve as like the bumpers. And then, you know, we held like mock interviews. And um, so we go in to record it and it was just like the greatest day ever, man. We're all doing our parts. And it's the first time I'm around. I'm like in charge of a project that's that's getting made, right? Um, and just as a crazy side coincidence, Buddy Miles came into the studio that day, who was in the, you know, the drummer in Band of Gypsies with Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. Buddy Miles. And me yeah. and my friend had just been on a Buddy Miles kick, and like the weekend before, we're out buying Buddy Miles records. Wow. And he just walked in and, and, and he's just sitting there and I'm like, I don't really recognize him. And he, <laughs> he keeps laughing at the bits that uh-huh. we're listening back to. And uh, so he's digging them. So, yeah, it's a good sign. So yeah. anyway, uh, that sparked in me like, I don't think I need the spotlight. I'm OK if I don't. I don't need to be a star. Maybe I want to produce want to write. So that led to me being invited to write for my friend's sitcom, which I got this close to. He actually got the show. It ran for a year. And, um, but we were both naive enough to think that that meant he could hire a writer. Not the case. Yeah. But they were like, if we get year two, he'll get on. He didn't get year two. And so I was lost, man. I just knew I didn't want to be at the mercy of other people who clearly weren't seeing it in me. Yeah. So you, you've taken, Kind of, you've had three things that just sort of slipped through your hands by this point, right? Getting this close, and yeah. even with the uh, with the writing, I thought like I got to see through the door, and I was like, "Oh, that doesn't look fun. Mm-hmm. Those guys look haggard, right?" 
I don't hear laughter coming out of there. So I was like, maybe I don't want that. And so I was doing, dude, I was just doing, um, trying to reestablish my life. I got married to Michelle, which I thought I wouldn't be able to pull off because I wanted to marry her since I was like 19. Mm -hmm. And uh, at this point in time, how old were you? Uh, we got married when I was 29. We were wow. 29 in Chicago. And then I quit comedy when I was in Chicago, meaning at least I'm not going to go on the road anymore. I was bartending. Yeah. And all my comic friends would come into my bar after the show was on like a Saturday night. That was the hardest part. They're all laughing about what had happened that night. And I'm like, another old style? <laughs> it felt weird, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so then we go to Florida and I had this one question in my mind, which is why do some people give other people money? I mean, it seems so basic, yeah. but I didn't understand how do some people make themselves valuable enough or build something valuable enough that other people purchase it from them? How do you get to the point where you have that thing now? And so anybody who seems successful, I would grow them. If uh, I was in a house, I mean, this is a nice house. What, do you, what kind of work do you do? Oh, I, you own a company? How, how does that work? I'd be just grilling. Yeah. I was really curious. You just became super curious. Yeah. With, yeah. And the two things I sort of learned was um, about people like that is they weren't afraid of the hard work. Um, and even though the, it was not a direct path, they kept on it. And two was they were the kind of people who just thought why not me yeah and i think i was the kind of person who thought you know money was for other people success was for other people mm -hmm. you either had to be born into it or your parents sent you to college or however it worked luck, was yeah. yeah or luck that wasn't how my life went so now what mm -hmm. and uh so then i met a friend who i'd known from comedy did not like the guy because he was a big cokehead okay so I was only knowing him at his worst. He was an alcoholic and did a lot of coke. I will not say his name. And uh, he, though, really liked me and really wanted to prove to me that he had cleaned up. Okay. And so he... And he he was had up, actually cleaned up. He had actually okay. cleaned up and started a business. And he um, is a very smart guy and a very smart business person. So he had built a business and he knew... I had my first kid and was working as a bellman in a hotel. Holy shit. And he's like, dude, why are you a bellman? I'm like, I'm figuring things out. He's like, look, he go, and he ran a telemarketing, like a sales company doing timeshare condominium resales. Holy foreign world to me. And he's like, look, he's like, I need help in this business. And he goes, and there are 10 guys in that room who are all smart enough to run my business and probably have more experience than me, but I wouldn't trust any of them. He goes, you don't know anything about my business, but I would trust you with my life. He goes, so I will pay you. He goes, how much do you make now? I'm like, usually about like 350 a week. He's like, all right, I'll pay you $400 a week to sit next to me and just observe and learn about what I do. And then we'll see where it goes from there. I'm like, I literally couldn't refuse that. Yeah, you can't. And did that for a while and started to learn the ropes. And uh, it was hardcore. I could tell some stories there, but I was learning. And then um, three months later, 
he started falling in love with comedy again. And so he decided he was going to drive to Seattle and audition for the Seattle comedy competition. And he, in typical fashion, comes in and makes this announcement. I am going to Seattle. And my doctor told me if I don't take some time off, I am going to die of a heart attack. He said, so you are now in charge of the company while I'm away. And he, I remember he threw his key ring to me. I can still see it, like all the keys. It's like slow motion. <laughs> and I'm like, he goes, if you have any questions, ask Carol. He had this great assistant who'd yeah. been with him forever. And I'm like, ah. and he goes, and by the way, you now make $800 a week. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> so you literally become essentially like the CEO of this yeah. company. Yeah. Yeah. And in dealing with oftentimes, you know, telemarketers, smart, conniving, often addicted mm -hmm. people who always want their check early. And I learned things from him like, if you do it for one, you're in trouble because they will tell and then everybody will come to you. You have to say no to things like that. And so things about like, the you know, I really started to enjoy the people management part of it. Yeah. And uh, learned a lot about business and sales. My job was to keep our record clean with the BBB. Okay. And at the time, uh, he was running a legit company. But it's sales, but we recorded everything. And I went to arbitration with the BBB like five or six times and never lost once. And just learning to win those cases, because um, I, I really had a lot of empathy for the people who everything we told them we would do, we did. It's just really hard to sell a week of timeshare. Yeah. You know, it's not a good market. Yeah. And, uh, but I would, I learned a lot about psychology and persuasion. And, yeah. I mean, it sounds like an, an actual masterclass in sales and psychology. Yeah. Kind of like, uh, you know, when you meet somebody who used to do door to door and they tell right. you they want to write copy, you're like, you're going to, you're going to do all right. You're going to do fine. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Well, let's take a quick cereal break. All right. But I have more questions for you. Okay. Why, why frosted mini wheats? So it's, it's the perfect bite of cereal because the milk has a chance to become part of the bite. Yeah. Not, you don't have two different things going on in your mouth. Yeah. Say with a Cocoa Puff, you got some, it's floating around and some milk in your mouth and it's, you know, this is like. This is like it absorbs the milk. Are you having properly? You know, yeah, I'm the same thing. You're getting it? I mean, did you I, ever eat the cereal yourself? Like, was I it, did, I did. It, I uh, was just a little surprised that it was your favorite. Um, yeah. But now that I'm having it, it's kind of a, Pull it over. I'm seeing it's underrated. Yeah. I think it was my favorite because it was consistently enjoyable. Yeah. It was consistent. It is like, consistent. You think about the real sweet ones, mm -hmm. you kind of go through phases. You'd be on the Cocoa Puffs and then you'd be all into yeah. something blue. <laughs> they but also, this is like, you know, it's like a meal. The cereal kind of changes. Uh, too. Like, there are some cereals aren't very good the more damp they get. Right. Exactly. This one is. What do most people choose? 
It's really interesting seeing people's choices, but um, so far we haven't had a single repeat cereal. Mm. Have we? Yeah. Which uh, one? Fruity Pebbles. Uh, Fruity Pebbles. Yeah. Thank you. You learned a lot about a person by the way they interview. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Like the the the, the questions they choose to ask and right follow they, up on yeah and, follow up on what they choose not to. What rabbit holes not to go yep, down? Hundred percent. It's yeah. kind of fun, isn't it? Like it, it's, it's very an interesting fun. ride because you have to make some split second decisions. Mm-hmm. There's, there's also, I want to compare it to, to comedy. I've never done any sort of comedy, but when you talk about having a little bit of a high, um, maybe maybe a good comparison is basketball. When you know, growing up playing basketball, if you had a really great pass to a teammate and it ended up being a great. Uh, shot on their end or whatever, just like a fantastic assist. I feel like when I've had a good interview, yeah. it kind of has that same feeling where you're like, damn, I was able to help you have like a great answer to this question. Mm-hmm. Or I put you in a position to kind of shine, you know? Um, but I don't know. Sometimes I do it better than others. But, you have a um, criteria for, for guests, for if it went, no, if it went well, in your mind, I'd say I I tend to be a pretty harsh critic. We we uh, Jeremy, my producer, and I will watch each interview from start to finish, kind of treat it like game film. Yeah. Um. So I normally don't know how I feel about it until then. Right. You know? Right. Uh, it came to be uh, after I'd been podcasting a while that I wanted. To get every guest to say, damn, that's a really good question. Yeah, that's a good goal. That's, yeah. Kind of take them, take them off guard a little bit. Yeah, and it usually happens with a question that wasn't planned. Yeah. It just shows your natural curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like you got me today on something, and it was just like, so, you know, that's the thing is like, are you paying attention? Are you engaged? You eventually get into, you eventually get into copywriting. How did you make that transition from, uh, telesales to actually writing copy. So yeah, it was a gradual transition, meaning time-wise. I think I stayed at that job in basically that position. I was ultimately vice president of the company um, or vice president of marketing or something. And um, as the company started to falter, my freelance career was building. So it was really kind of a beautiful transition that way. And like the less they could afford to pay me and needed me, the more I was needed yeah. with freelancing. Of course, um, the minute I made it official, it felt like I would never get another job. <laughs> I remember, you know, cause I think I just turned desperate and it felt like every lead I had was changing their mind or putting off the project, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, but it worked out, but it was, uh, I mean, I was working dude, the, you know, nine to five there. We had at this, when I started full-time freelancing, we just had our second child, Angelina. She was a newborn. And so I, my wife couldn't have been more supportive. Like the face she had in me, I questioned her all the time. Yeah. Like, I don't know what you were thinking. Yeah. I wasn't giving you much, yeah. you know? I mean, before then I was working hard then, but after stand-up, I don't know, I was just playing Madden, like, 
six hours a day. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what she was doing. <laughs> but uh, she was, you know, I mean, I would come home. We'd have dinner. I'd maybe help give the kids a bath, read them a book. And then we had this little thing called the Florida room. It's a like Florida a room? Florida room. Okay. Yeah. And it's just a way to add square footage to a house in Florida. And it's a concrete slab with aluminum siding. So it's almost like a little trailer attached to your house. Um, and we had one of those. And that was where, that was my office. Where you wrote. Yeah, that's where I wrote. So I had a little desk and freezing in the winter, hot ass in the summer. And I bought a, a window unit, air conditioner, um, obviously unbearably hot in the summer. And it was um, too big. It, more than I needed, and it's aluminum siding. So oh, when man. it would start up, the whole thing would shake. It would rattle. Yeah. I'd be on the phone with like trying to close the deal, and somebody would be like, "Are, are you are, are you next to an airport? Like, yeah. what is? That? Are you, are you <laughs> I don't worry about standing that. on the interstate? Just yeah. cooling the room a little bit. Uh, yeah. So, but man, you know, um, it's funny when people say now about and like i'm empathetic to anybody's scenario man um but if you there's always time yeah you know what i mean yeah. i think um, you make time for the the shit you care about you know exactly and i think that's the key man is that you if you don't feel it you're not gonna make time all you're gonna feel is oh i've put three hours a day towards this for three months and i'm not getting anywhere if it if you weren't enjoying any of those hours, then it's probably not your thing. Yeah. You don't need a long time pursuing something to know. You can be discouraged, but if you're deflated, you might want to keep looking. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's Naval Ravikant. He's a, he founded the angel list, really interesting kind of like entrepreneur philosopher guy, but he says you're, you're, core advantage is kind of the things that feel like work to others, but play to you. Yes. And I don't know. I try to pay attention to the moments in my life when I, when I feel that way, because most things are so competitive that if you feel like you have to force yourself to do them, right. you're kind of fucked before you start. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what does your writing process look like nowadays? Yeah. So I have more time than I've had in a long time, which is awesome. Um, my team's amazing. So if anything, I'm having to develop new disciplines around writing and getting things done. But I try to use morning brain. Like It's really hard for me to uh, do other things and then sit down and write. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, it can be done. So I'll, best writing day, waking up uninterrupted, fresh brain. I don't blow it myself by giving into any blips or beeps or alerts email text yeah. all that do you do you see so you just don't even touch that stuff i try not to I try not to and just uh yeah channel something yeah and then start and usually within if i get through the lead i think i was going to write then it's usually off in some other direction mm -hmm. by then um i i i've changed just to, if i'm writing an email and I'm foolish enough to try to write the subject line first. It usually never ends up being. Yeah. What what piece do you think you'll be most remembered for? 
Hmm. Hopefully I haven't written it yet. <laughs> Honestly. Um, right now, right now, the, I'll tell you that I can only go by the piece that has had the most, um, life. Cause I wrote it probably in, uh, 2005 or six is the one about working for my stepdad doing construction. Yes. And what he taught me. How, uh, can you tell that story real quick? Yeah, it was essentially um, when I was out of, I guess I'd probably quit high school. And we, um, he offered to, me to join his construction crew. Mm -hmm. It's probably like 16. Um, and I didn't have a reason to say no. And he was just my stepdad, Scotty, was a unique cat. Um, he was, uh, imagine like Jeff Spicoli meets w Willem Dafoe, okay. you know, California guy f had a fun side, but also super intense. And he would, his big thing was never get outworked. So he was a foreman on the construction crew. And he was the guy that would carry as many two by fours as he could. The tip of his finger would be on the top one and he would run he with would, that stack. Jesus you know Christ. what I mean? Yeah. One of those cats. And uh, I'm just, what I remember about it was like, whoa, I'm fish out of water. Yeah. Like, this is not what I'm made of. But I think I did like two weeks. And I remember by the end of the first week, you start feeling the, the dirt a little bit. And like, oh, maybe. What I loved was being done and going, I earned this sunset. Yeah. I did a hard day's work. Earned, earned your dinner. Yeah. yeah. And um, so then uh, during the second week, it had rained, typical Florida summer, and I was sitting on a concrete wall eating a sandwich. And he came over and he goes, never sit on wet concrete. You'll be sick as a dog. I go, he goes, I go, I've been sitting here for like 20 minutes. He goes, well, then you're fucked. And he was right. I mean, I woke up the next morning, dude, with like full on flu. You're just sick as shit. I mean, it, and is that just a superstition or what's what's? I the don't idea? know. I've never gotten sick like that fast after being told I was going to be sick. You know, so I've, I've wondered that. And is the idea the the wet concrete just fucking seeps into your? It, it just cools things that aren't supposed to stay that wet and cold. Interesting. I don't know, but. Either way, it came true, whether I manifested it or, <laughs> and because it was so fast, I woke up sick and he's, every morning he'd kick my bed. Yeah, let's go. Right. I'm not going to be late. And I go, dude, I feel like shit. He goes, I feel like shit every fucking day. Get up. And I didn't have the balls to go, no, man, I think I'm like sick. I'm like fucked up. Yeah. So get in the truck, sitting there between him and another guy, drive to Tampa. And I'm like, woozy. And you can tell now I'm a little fucked up. So by noon, he's like, go sleep in the truck. And I, I remember just being across his bench seat in front of his F-150 and just waiting, like, you know, just sick. And hearing the noise of it, the buzz saws and the yelling, it's kind of a beautiful calamity. Mm -hmm. the, the boom box competing boom boxes, blaring classic rock and shit. And uh, finally, man, he comes, he 
opens the door. I sit up. He gets in. He goes, good news. You're fired. And I go, thank God. <laughs> and he actually fired you. Yeah. You're done. Yeah. And, uh, and what I think, seems kind of unfair. <laughs> um, I think because he knew it wasn't that I was sick. It was that I hadn't been doing well up to then. Okay. It was probably more of a chore than a help. Yeah. And now I'd gotten sick from sitting on concrete. <laughs> I just wasn't built for it. He was right. doing me a favor. And then the real meaning sort of came. It was either that night or after I got better. I remember he said to me, he said, look, man, he goes, I wanted you to fail. He said, I brought you out there and kicked your ass for a reason. He said, you're a smart kid. Just accept that. He goes, make money with your head, not your hands. He goes, trust me, it doesn't last forever. And it fucking hurts. You have two kids. Uh, I mentioned him earlier, a previous guest on this podcast. He described having kids as suddenly being exposed to a whole new palette of colors as a mm. creative, as, a, as an artist. Mm. Have you... Did you feel like you had that similar experience when you had kids as a, as a writer? Interesting. Um, yeah, I suppose in the sense that you see the world through their eyes in ways that you'd forgotten you could ever see it. Maybe like a sense of wonder. Yeah, there is that for sure. You know, reading them books and how much yeah. they love that. that. Reminding that people truly love stories and stories are a unique and special thing to every every human. Mm -hmm. And why is that, right? So you do definitely get a lot of those things. Um, but what I remember the most is um, just having this different responsibility and way to see the world for keeping them safe and wanting to guide them in ways that inspire them. Mm -hmm. So... I, I know a lot of people talk about parenthood that way and it seems beautiful and I love the, but mostly it's something of a panic <laughs> Okay. <laughs> to, to be honest. Explain that. Um, well, you know, there, there's, they, uh, you have this baby and, and within 48 hours they're like, okay, good luck, go home. And yes, you've taken classes and read books and, and hopefully you have some support but there is this little alien life now that you are solely responsible for. And, and there is nothing like the, uh, you know, I remember some lovely friends of ours tried to bring us a gift the day we came home with the baby. And just the knock at the door was like, what, who could that, what could be going on? Yeah. And I, I looked out the door and they're like, hey. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, what, is, what are you doing baby here? baby in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't let you in. Germs yeah. and things. And it's like primal <laughs> shit or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, and I'm like, what is wrong with me? And the, they got it because they were parents, but it was like, and so that's mostly in when I see friends who become parents, that's what it is. It's mm -hmm. like this guardianship, I think to me is what, what awakens more than this wonderment. There is a lot of that. But um, my experience was more like, going at almost like warrior mode. Yeah. And then there, and, and uh, it's fun because there's different stages. 
you know, first of this blob and you just want to make sure it's breathing and then they, they get mobile and then you have to look for, get on the ground and look from their perspective. And then when they're, they can run, you spend the next few years in what I call free safety mode where you're like a free safety in football. You're just <laughs> behind them, <laughs> keeping about five feet and just ready to dart out and yeah. keep them from going in traffic or that's <laughs> just imagine like your whole world view is you're on a live play as a free safety in the NFL. That's kind of what it feels like. Jesus. I don't want to ru yeah. ruin any fantasies of, yeah. of fatherhood, but yeah. Yeah. But that's, <laughs> it's kind of a big part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. How, how do you raise a creative kid? You stay out of the way. Stay out of the way. hundred percent. I think, um, they're going to, if they're creative and if they're going to be drawn to being creative, they may appreciate that about you and they may take i think my kids have taken probably more inspiration from my friends your friends from people they've met through me and seen me around um because you're dad they're just like oh yeah that's just dad yeah you did me that favor and yeah. spent time with ben and you understood yeah that different voices are so important to even though i could be telling him the same shit 100 percent, he'll hear it from you and recognizing that, but mostly when it comes to what they're into creatively, I think stay out of the way. With our son, um, who particularly from a very young age was wanting to be music. He had his uh, Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment with Green Day on on Letterman when he was like five years old, six years old. He snuck out of his room and was behind us. Just in awe. In, in the couch and saw it. And he was like, I want to do that. And uh, we loved that because we loved music. And but it was like, if we try to push him or discipline how he goes about it, he's gonna hate it. Yeah. So we stayed out of his way, and he just kept loving it. Um, same with my daughter; she she loves the idea of being nomadic and free, like a freelancer. She's not quite sure what she would want to do to earn money yet. She loves writing, but she's not dedicated per se yet to the craft or. So she loves the idea of all of it, but she in particular like loves being at these events and just seeing all these people Taking it in. who get to live that way. So yeah, man, recognizing like what they want and who they are and giving them space to develop into that. Yeah. That's to me the best thing we did as parents. Yeah. What's your creative Mount Everest? Hmm. I'm at this point where I really just want to inspire people yeah. more than I do impress them maybe, or take them on a fantastic journey. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to, I care about the writing. Mm -hmm. So I'd want to do it through books and I would, but I would want it to be the, the kind of book that somebody gives to a friend when they need it and they know it's the one and yeah. it pays off yeah. with, with that intention. I love that. We have a, a, a fun game we play to kind of close things off. Right. Uh, so it's, it's sort of rapid fire questions, but the idea is you're going to light, light one of those matches. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question after you light one of the matches. Wow, and that's you're going to answer the question before it burns your fingers. And we're oh, going to do, so, oh, we're gonna okay. do three questions, so three matches. So I've got a minute. Right, this isn't a one-word answer thing. All right. Go ahead and strike it, and I'll ask you after it. Okay. If you strike it. 
All right. Um, I want you to come up with a new tagline for Frosted Mini Wheats. Um, okay. New tagline. So we'll be talking about it's a, it's like a meal thing. It's like, uh, um, a meal in every bite. I like that. A meal in every bite. And then they could add some BS about how there's actually good for you things in there. Yeah, tons of nutrition. Like if you value. only ate one, you'd be getting a meal. All right. I'm like, <laughs> All right. Next question. <laughs> I'm meeting everybody. <laughs> right. Name your top three comedian hairstyles. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's see. You got to have the kind of like a pompadour because you're just impressed that a comic got to keep his hair. Um, you've got the thinning hair of the guy who's been in showbiz long enough that he can't just shave and let it go because he's afraid it'll completely wreck his persona. And then you've got a um, guy who couldn't afford to get a haircut when he started, so he ended up with long hair, and now it looks cool. All right. Hell yeah. Third question. Uh, tell me, tell me a joke. A polar bear goes up to his dad and he says, dad, are you a polar bear? He says, of course, son, I'm a polar bear. He goes, oh, his mom, mom's a polar bear too. He says, yeah, mom's a polar bear. He goes, and, and my, my brother's a polar bear. Yes, we are all polar bears. Why do you ask? Says, I'm fucking cold. <laughs> <laughs> Um, man, this has been fucking awesome. Thank you so much. Um, for our guests to say thank you, we like to give them a couple of gifts. Um, first question, are you a, if, if you go to a bar, do you order a martini or an old fashioned? Old fashioned. I, I, I figured. Yeah. So, uh, this first gift, it's from, uh, my friends over at Host Cocktails. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think you'll really dig it. Thank you very much. Say, oh, yes. yeah, it's an old fashioned. It's Woo. fucking good, man. You should you should crack it open uh, tonight or something. Yes, all right. And then uh, a gift from me. This is uh, a first edition of Jack Kerouac on the road. No way. Are you serious, bro? Get out of town. It felt fitting. Are uh, you serious? I know he grew up in uh, Lowell, so. I mean, this is my guy. Wow, dude. Thank you very much. You're You're first edition. First edition. I don't even want to know what this cost or how you found it. First edition paperback. That is incredible. Thank you so much, man. You're welcome, man. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks, Cole. Well, folks, that wraps up another thrilling edition of Dreamland. Cole Schaefer and his team of creative misfits work their darn tails off each week to make this show possible. How do you compare your group with the Beatles? I don't know. How do you compare with the Beatles? I, I don't compare at all, you know. There's no point. Well, let's get right down to brass tacks. Do you think you're better than they are? Oh, oh what? You know, it's, it's, it's not the same group, so we just do what we want and they do what they want. And there's no point in going on and comparing us. You can prefer us to them or them to us. It's just diplomatic, you see. Very different.